Hi everyone, on this edition of Scouting for Growth, I will be welcoming a great friend of mine called Liz Lamney. Liz is an all-round fintech expert who is currently the deputy editor at The Banker, part of the Financial Times. So let's congratulate first Liz, who just received the State Street's UK Press Award Journalist of the Year for fintech technology, and digital finance. I'm so happy to have Liz on the podcast this week because once upon a time, Liz and I were colleagues. We used to work together. Liz ran a fintech program uh, that uh, was an acceleration program, actually, and I was uh, running the insurance technology one, so the InsurTech programming. And apart from that, uh, we must recognize that Liz has over 20 years of experience Uh, and has been a global specialist commentator on regulation, risk, data, and technology within the investment, retail, and global transaction of the banks. Liz is recognized internationally as one of the leading voices of fintech and banking technology. And also, you will find Liz every so often on the conference circuit as she's a well-known speaker and also a conference organizer. During our discussion, Liz and I will be discussing trends that affect fintech this upcoming year, and you will learn about her parcours to where she is today. So let's welcome Liz. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome, welcome my dear friend, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hello, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So Liz, you know, I know you well enough, but it would be great if we could start our little discussion with an intro about you and the great things you've done in our world of fintech. <laughs> who, who am I? Who am I? Yes, who, are you? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> who am I? Um, so I'm, I'm Liz Lumley. Um, uh, where, what I'm doing right now is, um, well, I've, I've been in this industry for about 28 years, um, kind of by accident. I, I always wanted to be a journalist. So m- most of what I've done in this space is uh, is uh, being a, a reporter or an editor covering how banks and financial services firms use data and technology. So that was, I fell into it by answering an ad in the New York Times where all I saw was the words New York and reporter and um, I, I figure out the bank stuff later, um, which, which I did. Um, so right now I'm deputy editor of, of The Banker magazine, uh, working for the wonderful Joy McKnight, who's editor of The Banker, and we're part of the FT, the Financial Times. So it's been a really, really interesting journey walking through uh, this industry, this really sort of um, <laughs> varied um, and, and uh, you know, immense industry of, of, of banking and financial services. But yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting career. <laughs> I can hear an accent, Liz. Can you tell us more about the accent? Where are you, where are you really from? <laughs> yeah. No, I grew up in Boston. I grew up in the suburb of Boston. Um, I, went to, you know, I went to university in New York because, again, I wanted to be a journalist. And that's where all the, 
you know, media companies are and magazines and, and, and newspapers. Um, originally, I wanted to sort of focus on politics. So I majored in communications and political science and nothing to do with finance or technology at all. Um, and I was working for a company called Waters Information Services uh, in New York. And um, they had a, a London office and a New York office. And they sent us over to London for a few months. And then I came back to New York and I kind of made it clear that if they ever wanted to send me over to London, like I would be up for it. You know, I was 25 years old and single and um, someone quit unexpectedly in the London office. And my boss came over to my desk and asked how fast I could pack. And three weeks later, I was in London for what I told my family would be a year. Um, that was, that was uh, 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> um, I just ended up staying. Yeah, it was, um, I met my husband, man who become my husband. And, you know, and when you, when you get a mortgage and you have a child and everything, you end up um, uh, putting down roots. So I became a citizen in 2015. Congratulations. Um, yep. <laughs> so they can't kick me out now before mm -hmm. Brexit. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I'm originally from the US, um, but I am a, a resident and citizen of this great country, the United Kingdom. So tell us a little bit more about your parkour. I know you are one of the leading voice in fintech, right? I know you, because of fintech, you mm. we, we became colleague when I was leading the InsureTech uh, program. In this accelerator, we we worked on together, and we had some great times and great learning experiences as well. And it would be great to understand that path from becoming the deputy editor at the banker. So, I, as I mentioned before, I was, um, you know, I I was reporting on uh, how banks and, and financial services firms use data and. Uh, and technology, and and I had worked as a research consultant, um, and I went and I I went back to Waters Information to launch a publication called Inside Reference Data. So I had a lot of experience about like how like my audience were not people on the street taking out a Revolut card. It was the people that worked in banks, working on the you know working in different departments, working um, in enterprise solutions. And um, I, a group of us got together and founded a magazine called Screen, which uh, was very well received in the industry um, and then went bankrupt after nine months. So pick, pick your investors wisely. Um, and then I ended up at um, Finextra, uh, where I kind of built up their multimedia and video business. So um, when I first joined there, I would wander around events with a camera on my back and do all the video interviews and I edited them and posted them. And I was the only one who, who did that. The only one who was doing that at any event anywhere. Um, and now you go to places like Money 2020 and Cybos and you know, there's, there's TV crews everywhere, but it used to be just me being chased by PR people to do, to do a video. But it was also around that time when um, social media started exploding a lot as well. And um, I got on Twitter, poor Twitter, and my voice became amplified and, and people started to, I kind of, um, I, I, I'm full of opinions. <laughs> I, I know, but I love that. <laughs> right, I we know, love that. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't keep them silent. So I would, you know, I write blogs and Finextra in addition to the, the doing interviews with people and webcasts and events. Um, and I started posting on Twitter and people really, 
kind of responded to that. Um, and so I met a lot of people saying, oh, I follow you on Twitter, or oh, I know you on Twitter. Um, and just my voice just became um, bigger and because of that. So I always, I always say a thank you to the, 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 some of the gods of social media. Um, it's social media has been very good to me in my career. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how it kind of, I came, uh, started becoming more well-known. And then of course, at this time, this is when kind of FinTech started emerging more and more where, you know, the companies I used to report on were the big guys of Reuters, IBM, Accenture. And then all of a sudden, all these sort of smaller companies started popping up. Um, so that was that was this new explosion. It just kind of all fit together as a storm um, to kind of amplify, amplify my voice. So mm -hmm. you became one of the first, if you don't mind me saying, videographers. So doing yeah. interview and enabling them to, us to visualize interviews. Mm -hmm. Then you actually went into building your profile in social media. And I want to go back into social media. Yeah. And now you are one of our fintech voices. So mm -hmm. how did you combine the three? Because today, you know, think about TikTok. People are actually more inclined to listening to 60 seconds of somebody's voice. And I recently heard from a psychologist that our brain can actually process two minutes of content. <laughs> don't know. So I need to readjust my, my approach actually. <laughs> but then social media, you know, like you, social media has been good to me mm -hmm. and has been enabling me to, to do, you know, social media influence work actually mm -hmm. alongside running my business. On the weekends, I have pretty much fun to build mm -hmm. social media campaigns. And then fintech, right? How did you, you every day connect those dots? Well, I mean, it was interesting. I, one of my, I would love to talk more um, someday about what's happened with journalism over, over the space of the past 30 years. You know, I, I originally wanted to be a magazine editor. Um, I'm kind of glad I didn't go into that into that world because it's a probably wouldn't have a job. Um, and it's, you know, I write about how digital is disrupting banking every day, but you want to talk about digital disruption, talk to a journalist. The whole business model of journalism has has been decimated. Um, you know, the banker is part of the FT. The FT is a paywalled uh, newspaper. The banker is a paywalled newspaper. So I now get a lot of people saying, I want to read your article, but it's behind a paywall. And I'm like, well, you know what? You got to pay for quality. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, but in seeing that journey happen, and I'm not going to say this is a way that I'm like some genius, but I remember launching Inside Reference Data and, and Incisive Media, and I wasn't in control of my website. And I got a scoop um, that... City had named a, a chief digital officer. And this was like the first time a large bank had ever made data a C-level um, uh, uh, appointment. But I couldn't put it anywhere because I didn't have a website. And in fact, I went to the publisher and said, I need to put this up on the website today. And they're like, oh, we didn't know you even wanted a website. This was 2006. So I was told specifically to save the news for the paper edition. Yeah, I remember. Which, and it was, you know, so I had to wait a month for that and watch as Bloomberg and Reuters and the Wall Street Journal all got this when I had it first. And then, you know, 
I went to Finextra and Finextra was always an, a news wire, was never a paper publication. And I was told off for tweeting the news and not saving it for the website. <laughs> um, and in my mind, a journalist, uh, one of my mentors uh, as a journalist is a man named Eugene Grigo, is still a journalist in this space in, in New York. And he said, you know, the best journalists have no, don't put their ego in the story. It's about, it's about getting truth out and getting the facts out and getting that story out. And so to me, doing that journalist instinct is, of course, I'm going to put it on Twitter because that's right in front of me. I'm not going to wait and sit at my desk and, and have that lag. And I think that that's something that a lot of people that work in this space had a hard time catching up to how the technology was changing how you do your job. Um, and I know sometimes almost technology interferes with business models as well. You know, you, you can see how, um, you know, giving away the news for free on Twitter might not be the best business model um, instead of saving it for the, for the magazine. But it's been a, a complicated journey around that. But I just, it's, it's, it, I knew a long time ago that no one was going to put a fat girl from the sub on the suburbs on stage, right? It was always going to be me. So I was never a, being a nice girl sitting at my desk waiting to be patted on the head. So I, social media puts you in charge of the narrative that you're putting out in the world and the stories you're putting out in the world. So I almost, you know, to against... <laughs> I, I would do this without even thinking. So I, I, social media came into this space of the way I worked, um, you know, beyond, I'm looking for a word, like not self-preservation. Like I, it's something I, I don't think I could have stopped doing. I couldn't have said, oh, well, maybe this will get me in trouble with the powers that be. It used, sometimes it did, but I don't think I ever would have stopped doing that and expressing who I am um, as a person. And also as a journalist, um, people like to speak to other people. Yeah. You know, and if they think they know you on social media, even though they've never actually met me before, they're more likely to sit down and have a chat because I've they've been following me for a few months on my yeah. different things. So yeah, Sorry. that's that's kind of a, a complicated <laughs> answer to your question of how it's all these great. things kind of came together. Yeah, it's, it's a great way. answer. And as you said, maybe, you know, let's find maybe some time to talk about journalism because mm. I want to understand this better because, you know, I write and I write and I put my content usually on LinkedIn, right? I'm mm. the LinkedIn editor. And at the same time, I, I wonder whether it's right or wrong, whether I should keep my story for a journalist, but I never think about it, right? I said, okay, I've written it, go out, and then, you know, it's all about the, the likes and the follow and the commentary and all those things, uh, which you actually have on, on both channels. I'll just share with you a story which I uh, heard a couple of weeks ago. So it's super interesting, actually, Liz, because um, I did a piece of work with uh, one of the fintech influencers. And so... What happened is um, he was telling me a story where uh, he was invited to talk at one of the major conferences, like Web Summit. Mm. So what they did um, is that the conference had a group of influencers 
And let's say, you know, five to nine of them uh, reporting on the news for using social media. And then a group of, of journalists doing the same. Actually, they had 40 journalists to nine influencers. And the result of the work was that the influencer succeeded to, to reach over 40 million um, people through the, the campaign, while the journalist reach out something like 4 million. And so what I'll ask him is like, so what does it mean? You know, should we only use social media to do our work or should we still use journalists? So I'm still trying to understand how this whole world works actually. And I think it's worthwhile to find the time to talk about that topic and how we maximize the value for people out there and you are doing that every day right because you are using both you have yeah. to, to and manage more, and more leverage. journalists more yeah. journalists need to use social media as well yeah. that's my that's my viewpoint yeah. yeah yeah so well you know the reason why here is i wanted to ask you about fintech you're an expert in fintech and as we know we are moving into 2023 so what mm-hmm. are the top trends in fintech um so I can tell you what the hypey trends are and what the real trends are. <laughs> like that. <laughs> All right. So you'll get a lot of people talking about where financial services is going with like the metaverse and, and Web3 um, and how like payments and, and services are going to be embedded in that world going forward. And I think that is an interesting conversation, but it's it's right now it's very innovation theatery it's something to talk about on stage and and nothing is actually happening what's actually happening right now is this we've had so much growth over the years not just in startups but in, in banks as well there is now a, a revert a, 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 a turn towards efficiency and uh, it's cost cutting and saving money and um, talent retention. Yeah. So that's not a sexy thing to talk about, but that's, I guarantee that's what almost every bank is working on right now, operational efficiency. <laughs> Interesting, because we, we see that simplification still taking place as well mm-hmm. in insurance, and we have a major problem around talent acquisition and talent mm. retention. And actually when, so I've done some work around the metaverse, but more virtual reality Mm-hmm. We are using the we we were identifying how VR can actually enable employers to onboard, retain, educate employee, partly the Gen Z, who are more likely to leave after six months. So we are actually seeing the the similar patterns around needing to improve the internal organization, still digitizing it but also finding ways to retain talent and acquire it. And, you know, people probably find FinTech or insur- in banking a bit sexier than, than insurance. So we have a major talent, talent gap that we need to mm-hmm. right now. There's a huge amount, yeah. yeah. And quantum computing. And quantum computing. <laughs> and you know, we are far, you, it's still far, computing. right? It's still mm-hmm. far away, I think, quantum, but mm-hmm. I think we need to start thinking about it now. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so it's interesting because there's similarity, but so when you look at fintech and some of the development, so I was looking at some numbers, right, in, in mm-hmm. fintech, I think last year there were 150 billion USD dollars invested in uh, fintech for the year, 
like in 2021. And I think the predictions will be around 100 billion this year. So, you know, 50 billion yet less uh, than last year, but that is probably across industry the same in, in insurance technology, where uh, the numbers were around 17 billion last year, it will be 10 billion this year. And, you know, we tend to stick to down nine to 10% investment mm -hmm. dollars vis-a-vis -a, -vis a FinTech. So I know you mostly work with banks and uh, financial technology ventures. Any thought around what should we pay attention to in our less sexy industry, which is uh, insurance? Um, poor insurance no insurance insurance you know that's like the oldest oldest financial services out there insurance um it's interesting because i always take i always take what i call it a big tent view of fintech that um to me fintech is anything that that makes the bank better like using technology to make financial services better no matter who does that now i know sometimes when you talk about growth and investment you're talking about like a you know a specific company, a specific sector, groups of companies, you know, outside big tech, outside big banks. Um, but I, I kind of like taking a, a wider approach that it's this sort of pulsing ecosystem of big banks and big techs and little companies and medium-sized companies and the IBMs and the piggy banking and all these all these companies kind of kind of working together. I mean, in, insurance is one of those. Um, sectors that that are always it's that the sexiest part of it is that you won't know it's there I mean you, you we've had insurance embedded into things for a very long time you know when you buy a car for example when you um, but you want to you want to see that in the purchase when all, almost you don't know it's there and you only know it's there when you need it and I think that's that's harder to achieve than, than people realize having having that custom having that service to the customer there when they need that service because I think this is not just insurance this is this idea of owning the customer so that you can sell them more stuff is the mindset I think of a lot of lot of people in the industry instead of owning the customer so that you can serve them better which I think would actually end up making them a more profitable customer in the long run. But that's not the mindset I think a lot of people have. So yeah, insurance is one of those things that you only want it there when you need it. I mean, for example, a few years ago, we came home from a weekend away and the boiler had exploded. You know, our kitchen was just, you know, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, steam everywhere, there was water everywhere. And of course, what you do in that panic is you open up your digital yellow pages and you call a plumber who immediately came and turned off, turned off the water. But what we should have done is called our insurer to get a plumber that's in the insurance plan, mm -hmm. right? So, but wouldn't it have been great if you opened up your phone and it's kind of, you know, this is all permissioned and everything. And it would, it would show you the, 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 the plumbers you can call because yep. it knew, because your house knew what your insurance plan was so that in that panic, it's Everything. there when you need it. You know, that, that's a future I think that is, I, I want to see more people envisioning. 
Um, but you know, this exists already, right? And not with every insurer. So you need to do your research. But you touch upon a very important topic, not the buzzword, <laughs> embedded finance. So, you know, we are moving into embedded insurance. And uh, this year, I mean, for the past two years, there have been a lot of skeptic because, um, you know, when we think about embedded, embedded is not new. When you mm. think about calling your broker and, um, or, or going to Marks and Spencer, and you know when you go into buying your, your you know checkout, you have on the side you know your credit card advertisement and your insurance advertiser. It's a form of embedded, right? Mm-hmm. And so embedded has become, uh, I guess, a little bit sexier because it's not just about sales and distribution. Now it's about infrastructure, right? Betting services what you are talking about, I think, around the customer engagement, where you're actually building digitized infrastructure where the widgets are fully automated to actually drive the customer value. So combining those services for finance with non-finance, and now you may know I've been doing some work around embedded health. So looking at the world of embedded, you know, can you tell us a little bit of the story of embedded in finance? And, you know, your example is a very crucial one for us. But I think over time that embedding may actually be in everything we see around us, but insurance. <laughs> I thought I thought insurance is the most likely to be embedded. <laughs> it, is, it is going yeah. to be embedded, but you know, <coughs> the, the way you're going to find it may not be around calling maybe some of the leading insurance companies. It may yeah. be as you go and buy maybe a dress, maybe as you go and buy a handbag. You see what I mean? This, this more consumer-led approach mm. to, um, to insurance. Some startups we've done very well are working with some of the leading auto manufacturers and embedding the insurance trade into the car purchased. So mm. um What's your view on this world of, you know, another buzzword, but one I think which is going to be significant for the year? Yeah, no, I think it's I think banks need to get their head around that it's it's a good thing for them as well. You know, having people people want banking services and financial services, um, but it needs to be where where they're doing their living, Mm -hmm. you know, and having those services embedded into you know, having it from a secure regulated entity, but embedded into where you're doing the activity is the future. And I think, I think bank, but it is, it's cultural as well. Banks need to understand that this is, it's, it's a better situation for them and for the customer and they're not losing that ownership going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, that that's, I mean, because of that culture, it will probably take longer to get there, but (laughs) um yeah get putting bringing banking to where you do your life I mean the banks there's you know they're they're off the high street now they're not on the they're not we don't need to go to them but they need to come to us to where this happens um and and uh but there's yeah that's where we're moving forward definitely (laughs) that's where we're moving forward (laughs) I just you just have to get there and there's a lot of there's a lot of players pushing that forward so so, I mean, you know, you, you made a good point around, you know, I've not visited a bank uh, forever. And I think the last time I, I went into a bank was before COVID when, you know, still you could find NatWest, you know, in the city mm-hmm. of London, right? Uh, just maybe 
because it was there and I needed some cash and, you know, there was a big queue outside. But I, it is true, we don't need to go into those environments. So what do you think, when you look at fintech, because now you have, you know, the Revolut and the Starling Band and the Pioneers and all those, mm-hmm. you know, payment platform, which are giving you opportunity to do payment in different ways and the banking sector, because I'll tell you, the bank I was with before COVID, I had to say bye-bye because they could not deal with my demands while I was sat at home, mm. you know, could not get a call in. And so I had to go to digital banking instead, truly digital banking. So what are the challenges the bank's still facing, which I assume can be good lesson learned for our insurance colleague listening to, to this podcast? And what are the maybe the advantages and probably some of the struggles still fintechs are experiencing? So, I mean, one of the things I've always, always, you know, people don't like their bank, but they trust it, right? That's always been kind of the ace in the hole for banks that they, they're regulated. They're, you know, your money is to the, you know, for, for, to a certain amount safe there. You're not going to lose it. If you're a victim of fraud, you know, they're, they're, they're used to dealing with that. I mean, there was, I have radio four on during the day and today on you and yours, they did a whole piece, 20 minutes on people who've been, who are customers of Revolut and who are victims of fraud and the way, and this isn't particularly necessarily, but the whole episode was about Revolut, about how Revolut, which is, you know, has a banking license in Lithuania, but not over here, was not dealing with the customer service in a way that a bank would if your card was stolen or you were, you know, fished or you, you clicked on the, the wrong link type of thing. And, you know, and some of the stories of these people was they had like 60, 70,000 pounds on a Revolut card. And I, I have, I've got a traditional bank card. I've got a, a, a Starling card. I use my wise card all over the world because you can just change the currency, but I have like my wise card. I've got, I don't know, 200 quid on it. I would never put tens of thousands because it's not, it's not a bank. You know, my, my paycheck goes into my high street bank account. And then I take out little bits on my other cards that I use. And I don't think, you know, I know that there's all this hype around that FinTech exploded because of the, financial crash and the loss of trust in banks. But, you know, being mad at, I think that the, the, the noise that sometimes was perpetrated over the past 10 years about the hype of FinTech, that banks don't know what they're doing. Um, And, and I'm not saying that the in, the world shouldn't be mad at 2008 because you know there was a lot of lot of nefarious dealings going on but they are secure regulated entities okay at the end of the day they are and that shouldn't be dismissed regulation is not something that you move fast and break to get to the innovation not when it's my money and your money um, and I think that there are more people like waking up to this. There was this bank that I met at Money 2020. I'm not going to name them because they were absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, one of their selling points was that there's no bankers there, right? 
we're a bank run by not by not bankers. We're all engineers. We're all software people. And I'm like, would you go to a dentist? It's like, we don't have any, no one went to dental school. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. Can I have someone that went to dental school to do like, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this, like banks are, are wonderful angels and they never do anything wrong. They do a lot of things wrong, but there's a reason why it's a bank. A bank is not, is not a name you pick out of a marketing book. It is a legal term. It is a secure regulated entity of where your money is safe. And I think that more people need to understand this and realize this yeah. um, and, and understand that one of the reasons why, you know, banking and financial services has not been disrupted like journalism has and video rental stores. And because it's just not the same, the same industry. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, your example is fascinating to me because, um, I mean, I listened to some of the stories for, for Revolut and, you know, I was at Web Summit with one of my insurance uh, colleagues and we were listening to Nicholas talking about uh, his platform and his organization and the volume of customers uh, they have and then moving into like starting banking to B2B, uh, business banking and still, and, and also if you look at their website, you will see that they actually say that the money is safe for business to, to business, so business banking up to 85,000 pounds. But what we are hearing here is maybe not completely regulated um, as a proper bank is today. So people need to be careful around really yeah. understanding the, the fine lines. They're, they're not regulated in the UK. You've got to, you know, <laughs> think about that. There are reasons why. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so we talked about, you know, why we are, we still need to, to care for the bank, but one of the main things the bank needs to steal do better to actually keep their <laughs> customers and actually bring more into the doors because all of us are the traditional banks. We all need yeah. traditional banks anyway. I mean, like yeah, they've done a very good job with um, like, you know, copying some of the little, the little nice things that fintech banks and fintech companies have brought, brought to us. You know, I think I, I was on, I saw someone on stage a few months ago said, we love having fintechs in because we can like see what they do and then copy it. But I mean, hey, anyway, the end justifies the means. But one of the things I think that is going to happen over the next year or so, maybe a few years, you know, we've had this period of low interest rates and now we're going to higher interest rates and we have a cost of living crisis, which is going to hit a lot of people very hard. And it's going to start hitting, you know, the middle class is very hard when the mortgage rates go up and banks are going to profit a lot. Yeah. And that's that's going to be a, a, a PR minefield because I don't think banks are going to suffer a lot over the next few years, but their customers are. Yeah, no, I um, And they need to um, address that somehow um, a bit better than than maybe they would have in the past. And I think we've seen that, you know, at the beginning of the um, of the pandemic and within one year in and you look at the bonuses and uh, some of the uh, the banks and, and, you know, no one, no, no banking institution really had been affected, you know, cost of living got higher, you know, your, your food bill got higher. 
and your interest rates uh, on your cards got higher. So mm. at the end of the day, I would say some of the sectors were not as affected as others. But as we are moving to a high interest rate, high inflation world, you know, high cost of living, um, some, you know, some of the financial institution needs to be actually pay attention to this very carefully. Mm. Yeah. So when you look at the future, we are going to, you know, take us into 2023 and take us into what you would want to see and what you will want to, to do next year, Lise, around, you know, how do we change our world and make it a little bit better? What are the things we need to watch out for? And what are you going to focus on yourself? <laughs> um, well, all, we're going to be all in the metaverse, obviously. You know, we'll all just be, <laughs> be doing this. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, focusing more on um, the fact that, that human beings use financial services. You know, m- most of the world's population uses financial services in some shape or form unless you live in a cave somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Um, so understanding that customer journey and, and who the customer is really and not, and not the perfect customer and not the happy journey and not the, yeah. So, because I think banks are going to see a lot of people over the next few years that, um, that had previously spent 20 years not missing a mortgage payment and, it's going to be tough and that's going to hit some of some people for the very first time. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see, I, I'm sorry to repeat myself again, but yeah. Um, understanding who the customer really is not just in a sell you more stuff thing, but um, un, you know, understanding how to service the customer and, and understanding financial services role in society. Cause I'm one of those strange people that kind of, I think a secure regulated bank account is the cornerstone of civilization. Um, if you just look at how many people are denied access to these things around the world, it, it's the poor, it's women. Um, this, there's, a, there's a power in controlling your own money. Banks need to realize that, yes, they're profit-making entities, but they're like schools and hospitals. They're part of the fabric of what makes human civilization work. And I think they need to see themselves in that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, you are, you are raising a very important point, which is one of uh, the significant area, you know, we, ha- we are start trying to address even in insurance, which is called the protection gap. And, you know, serving the underserved and the vulnerable. I mean, if you look at our protection gap, if you start speeding it up, um, right now I've been looking just at the, uh, you know, protection gap within the context of embedded healthcare, just to get proper healthcare. And, you know, that range into trillions globally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Swissry has been writing a lot about it and uh, trying to find ways to, for, for us as, um, you know, working with, with young ventures to start designing products and services, which are not uh, just for the wealthy, but also to be for uh, mm-hmm. the less wealthy. And it's hard because then you need to look at affordability. And affordability becomes, you know, as you know, we have, if you don't want me using the term, positive discrimination, right? Because you have mm-hmm. an underwriting score and uh, you need to make sure that what you're underwriting, you're not just underwriting for the sake of having claims. And so it's about finding a way to create fairness. And, and it is hard, right? When you don't always have all the data available in 
In banking, you have open banking. We don't have yet open insurance, um, Lise. And so there's so much more that needs to be done to actually allow to have this even playing field where you can look at the underserved and the vulnerable. You can start building and shipping the product to the future, which are affordable, mm -hmm. and base that on the right data. But you see there is still regulation mm -hmm. around us to, to protect, you know, from, mm -hmm. from the health and insurance people to protect people so that they are not discriminated against. It's tough. It's, tough. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not an easy. I wish I wish there was like a silver bullet. You should do this and everything will be fine. And it's, it doesn't work that way. No. It doesn't work <laughs> like this. And so tell me, you are going to be doing some events and conference and awards. What do you enjoy the most on the positive notes? You know, what do you enjoy the most when you actually interact with the banks you're working with? and uh, awarding them in some ways for the work so, in life. So going back a little bit, I mean, I've reported on, I started off uh, like in trading floors and investment banking. And, um, you know, I've, I've reported on every single part of the bank, retail bank, transaction bank, corporate bank, all of it. And, you know, one of the things that kind of annoys me sometimes when the public perception is, is everyone's a wolf of Wall Street you know, everyone's doing coke on the trading floor and, you know, and um, like it's the 80s. And I, I, I went to a roundtable. We did a roundtable at Bracken House uh, last week, and it was full of uh, full of people who work in operations and sales. And they spoke very passionately about that customer journey okay. and about, you know, helping people that may be in vulnerable situations. And I thought, I wish... I wish sometimes people could realize that there are human beings that work at financial services and work at banks. And a lot of them are good people. Yeah. You know, yeah. like sometimes there are organizations where the structure and the culture makes it very difficult to change things and it makes it difficult to innovate. There's a lot of, lot of writings on this, but they don't go to work every day thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to screw the customer? Most people go to work thinking, how do I, how do I make things better? You know, what strategies do we have? What, what, how, how can we pull this investment to fix this? What technology can we use? Who can we hire? And there are a lot of people in this industry that, that go to work every day like that. And some of them have more success than others. And sometimes it just depends on the teams they're in or the organizations they're in. Um, yeah, so that, that's why I kind of like uh, talk, talking to as many people as I do, because you get to understand the real real human beings behind what um, can be kind of a misunderstood industry at times um, in, in general, but yeah. It's a fair, I mean, absolutely fair point. I mean, remember all the time we were working with some great banks uh, when we were working together and we were working with, you know, head of innovation and head of transformation. You know, we were seeing operational uh, sales distribution people coming to meet the startups to actually learn how they can make the bank better and the financial, let's say the financial service institution better. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that digitization touched so many people and it's mm. beyond the trading floor as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Lise, where can people find you? You mentioned the banker, the manager EFT. Where can we go and find you if we want to know more about you and people want to reach out and learn how maybe they can bridge the gap between banking. And well, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I am on um, 
on Twitter while it lasts. I might have hope that it'll stay around at um, at Lislam on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm at, uh, I got an FT email address, elizabeth.lumley at ft.com. Um, I'm on TikTok, but I, TikTok is my um, non-financial serve. My, like I don't, unless you are sipping a cocktail on a beach in Greece, I don't want to know you on TikTok. Those are the people, <laughs> that's the content that I go on to for that. Um, but like LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the two big social media platforms. Um, that, that I use, you can contact me that way. Well, thank you so much, Liz. We will definitely continue to follow you, check out your amazing work. And, you know, congratulations again on, on the award. This ah. is wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much. We need more. <laughs> We need more awards for you and more awards in, in our, you know, women industry. Um, thank you for being with me today. And thank I you for inviting to, me. I look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.